Good morning. Listen, Merry Christmas in advance, everyone. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, So, so good to be uh, with you all this morning. Again, uh, if you're a guest with us, a very special welcome to you. So, so glad uh, that you opted to come and spend some of your morning uh, with us. My name is Kondo. I get to serve as one of the pastors uh, here at Mission Point. And this morning, I have uh, the great, great privilege of continuing our series. We're in the third of a four-week series uh, that we are calling A Bigger and Better Christmas. And at the heart of this series is really, 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 really simple. We just want to agree with the truth of Scripture and make the declaration shamelessly that Jesus Christ is better than whatever you might be hoping for or whatever you might be running from this season. God has already won the whole Christmas comparison game. He's already given the greatest gift. He's already hung the brightest light. He's already offered the greatest hope. He wins. We just want to agree with him in declaring Jesus is bigger. Jesus is better than whatever it is we might be hoping for. Whatever it is we might be running from this Season. And so what we've been doing over the course of the last couple of weeks is just looking at stories in the New Testament in which a bunch of people who are on a quest, who are searching for something, run into Jesus and quickly discover the truth that he is bigger than whatever they might be afraid of. He's better than whatever it is they might be enamored with and running after. And so we're going to continue that uh, this morning uh, by looking at another crazy story in which Jesus encounters a couple of people like you and like me. He encounters a prostitute and a Pharisee, just like us. And you see that to be more true than you might initially think. If you have a copy of the scriptures, uh, join me in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. And we're going to start reading at verse 37. Um, But let me just give you a a little bit of background to the story, this encounter that we're about to see. Jesus Christ goes to a party at the home of a Pharisee. Now, if you know anything about the New Testament, you know, cue the Jaws music. Things are already tense with that statement right there. The Pharisees were a group of highly influential, very powerful religious leaders in Jesus' day. Their mission in life was to shut Jesus down. They couldn't stand Jesus. This new teacher in town had come in and he was threatening their livelihood, their well-being, and he was stealing a bunch of followers who were going after after him. And so word came down from headquarters, shut this guy down. And they were committed to it. In fact, they would be responsible for the execution of Jesus Christ when it was all said and done. But on one occasion, a Pharisee seems to be the the debate genius among them, the brightest of the brightest, invites Jesus to his house for dinner. It's a trap. It's a ploy. It's a setup. He wants to get Jesus in a context where he can just absolutely degrade him and diss him in front of as many people as possible. His intention is to discredit Jesus. So he invites Jesus over, and Jesus accepts. He knows what's up, but Jesus still agrees to go to this man's 
house. Now, a couple of things. Um, in, in that particular context, a dinner like this would have actually been a public event. Uh, the general population could just kind of wander into this Pharisee's home through the archway into a courtyard that would have sat in the middle of his home. This outdoor courtyard that would have sat in the middle of his home that the public could just kind of wander in. And even though they weren't invited, they didn't have a spot around the table, no soup for them, they could eavesdrop on the conversation and watch everybody else In fact, that's how a lot of people would learn truths um, about God by sitting in these public contexts and just eavesdropping and just listening in. Now, with a guy as hot and as high profile as Jesus in town, you better believe it was standing room only, which played perfectly into the plan of this Pharisee. Because if you're going to diss and disregard, if you're going to show someone up and shut them down, what better place to do it than in a public context in front of an audience? And he had a buzzing audience. And so from the moment Jesus sets foot into this Pharisee's home, he begins Operation Humiliation. He goes to great lengths to make Jesus look like a fool. And he does this in in a couple of different ways as we read through this story. Uh, It was common cultural courtesy that when somebody came to your house, you offered them a few gestures of hospitality. Number one, when they came over, you would greet them with a kiss on their cheek or on their forehead. That was just your way of saying, hello, welcome to my home. When Jesus got to the Pharisee's home, no such courtesy extended. And with a public watching, they're like, ooh. The second thing you would do is you would offer them just a tiny dab of the most cheap generic oil, just as a gesture of refreshing. I don't know if it was somehow designed to cover the funk of the sweat from the day's walk or whatever, but... No such gesture was offered to Jesus. The third thing was that the host of this home would offer some water for his guests to wash the dust off their feet from walking those dirty streets to come over for dinner. If this particular host was super hospitable, he he would even wash the feet himself. But when Jesus arrives at the Pharisee's home, no such courtesy, no such gesture. The guests who were invited to dinner would sit at a low table, no chairs involved. They would literally recline on cushions, forming an S-shape with their bodies, where their faces would be towards the table and their feet would be pointed away from the table. This Pharisee has Jesus strategically sit at the end of the table, closest to the public, so everybody can see his untendered feet, dirty for everyone to see this public gesture of you are nobody Jesus you're a phony and I'm about to show you up and shut your whole operation down so you can imagine in that courtyard things are pretty tense it's like ooh, it's on now and if you thought this was tense we're about to graduate from tense to straight up awkward In a couple of moments here, look at what happens in verse 37. Because this was a public event, a public affair, but you know, probably fair to say there are certain people who were not wanted, not welcome. Look at verse 37. It says, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating 
at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. At which point all of us should say, nah, she didn't. Yes, she did. Um, now, let me just cut through um, uh, the delicate language of Dr. Luke and tell you uh, this woman is a prostitute. That's what he means. She is a hooker. She sells her body to men for money. That's how she makes a living. When Luke says that she had lived a sinful life, that's his way of saying that she had lived a publicly sinful life. He's letting us know that her life was no secret to anybody. Everyone in town knew exactly who she was and knew exactly what she did for a living. She had lived such a public sinful life that I wonder if she wasn't the cautionary tale of parents to their little girls of what happens to you if you don't finish your vegetables and if you don't listen to your parents, you're going to end up like mm-hmm, over there. And in a religious culture like, like that one, she would have been scarlet lettered and socially ostracized. She would have been an outsider who didn't belong anywhere, especially not at this little religious gathering at the Pharisee's house. And isn't it just obvious that she has no friends? Because what friend would honestly listen to her crazy plan and sign off on it? Hey, so heard um, that teacher guy is over at that holy guy's house. So I'm going to go over. Mm, Okay, have fun. No friend would sign off on that. Hey, guys, just wanted to let you know I'm heading over to the barn for the, you know, the annual KKK Christmas party. (laughs) Their punch is off the hook. BRB. <laughs> You'd be like, no. No, I don't think you'd be right back, but okay. I, th- I don't think a friend would sign off on a plan like this. But here she goes, right? Apparently thinking this is a good idea. And she knew it was a bad idea. It, it was a bad idea on so many different fronts. This was a spiritual no-no. She knew that the Pharisee believed a number of things about her. There are certain kinds of people that God would never let into heaven. He would never forgive. He would never let anywhere near him. And at the top of that list, prostitutes. God hates prostitutes. In fact, he fuels the flames of hell with their damaged goods. And because God hates prostitutes, it's our obligation to hate them too. If a Pharisee saw a prostitute heading in his direction, he would cross the street by obligation and walk on the other side. Just so he doesn't run the risk of getting her brand of yuck, her brand of mess on him. Just so in case God decides to strike this woman he hates with lightning, he's not in the vicinity to get some of the ricocheting effects. God hates prostitutes, and any righteous person hates prostitutes as well. And she knew this, and she's going, where? Well, apparently she hears Jesus is at the Pharisee's house, and she's like, oh, well, off we go then. And she starts to head towards this 
man's house who believes she is unforgivable and to be avoided at all costs. So she grabs her little jar of perfume, clings to it, and starts to head towards the house. I can't even imagine what that entrance would have been like. Can you? That had to have been the longest walk of shame, the longest walk of fear in human history. Her heart is pounding. Her head is low. She dares not to make eye contact with any of these people she knows do not want her to be there. She can hear the whispers. She knows what they're calling her. She's heard it all before. She can feel the awkwardness and the nervousness of some of her religious clientele who are just hoping she's not there to confirm the 3.30 appointment for tomorrow. It's awkward in there. And as she approaches the standing room only crowd, I wonder if they don't start to part like the Red Seekers. Nobody wants her to touch any of their righteous selves. You don't have to ask. It's clear. She is making a beeline towards Jesus. The awkwardness is just swelling in that court. Yard. I mean, how crazy is this woman? And she's just about to get a touch crazier. Look at verse 38. As she stood behind him, that's Jesus, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair. She kissed them and poured perfume on them. At which point we all said, nah, she did it. Yes, she did. Things are not going well. She gets close to Jesus and she just loses it. She comes apart at the seams. The ducts explode and tears just flood from her face. She knows she's a mess who has messed up so badly and something in the presence of Jesus just brings it out of her. And the minute she realizes that her tears are wetting the feet of Jesus, she drops to the ground like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? Uh, She she didn't plan for this. She she doesn't have something to wipe the tears that are now turning into mud with the neglected feet of Jesus and the dirt that were on them. And so she improvises and she instinctively does the only thing she can think of. She lets down her hair and she begins to wipe his feet. Uh Uh-oh, no she didn't. The crowd is furious at this point. I imagine moms are like carrying their kids home and, and covering their husband's eyes and dudes are like, best day ever. Because in that culture, a woman was forbidden to let her hair down except in the presence of her husband or unless she was trying to make an extremely explicit, suggestive gesture towards a man. And I find it really interesting That that was her instinct. That was all she knew. So she went with it, let her hair down, and started wiping the feet off Jesus. Can you even imagine how awkward that moment was? I wonder if security gets up to go and rush her off and the Pharisees are like, "Mm -mm. (laughs) mm-mm. This is actually working out in my favor. Let's let it play out. See what Mr. Big Shot does. 
with this little situation right here. And then it says that she began to kiss his feet. She just took it one step further. I mean, the line's already crossed, so let's not even worry about that. But she just takes it one step further. And the language insinuates she kissed his feet and then kissed them again. And then she just went on kissing them and kissing them and kissing them and kissing them. People are losing their minds. The Pharisees like, <laughs> so busted, so busted. The paparazzi are just like taking pictures rapidly, Right? Teacher gets frisky with prostitute at Pharisee's house. That's not how you build a ministry, by the way, Jesus. This is not a good idea. But while she's down there, she eventually does what I believe she came to do all along. She uncorks that little jar of perfume. And and then she pours its contents on the feet of Jesus, which seems to be why she came in the first place before she just fell apart. Now the crowd's just confused. What is she doing? See, for her, that jar of perfume would have represented her life, her lifestyle, and her livelihood. A little dab of that stuff is what she used to seduce and to lure men to come and pay her for her services. This was how she made a living. And yet she brings this very thing, the most prized possession she owned, the very thing that kept food on her table, and she pours it all out on the feet of Jesus. If she loses this, she loses her life. And yet in this moment, she doesn't lose it. She chooses intentionally to pour it all out on the feet of Jesus. But you know what I find most compelling about this story? You know what I think is the most awkward, if there's any really, really awkward part in this story? There is a prostitute, inappropriately attired, crying, kissing, and going all bath and body works on Jesus' feet, and he doesn't even react. He doesn't seem even remotely bothered. Matter of fact, Luke insinuates that Jesus enjoys it. By the way, he ends up talking to this Pharisee. He doesn't even turn around to be like, girl, what are you doing back there? He just continues eating and chatting. Everybody else is awkward except Jesus. This is awesome. This is so good. Jesus doesn't seem repulsed by her. He doesn't seem repelled by her. He doesn't seem unnerved by her. He seems to actually be enjoying her presence and this gesture. And I'm telling you, that is our hope. Whether you realize it or not, that right there is our hope. Because some of us sitting in this room this morning can relate all too well with this prostitute. 
We have made a mess of our lives and we know we've made a mess. There is no denying it. There is no hiding the fact. The evidence is all around. For years we've chosen to live lives of sin. That would make church folks cross the street if they knew the kinds of things you do behind closed doors. You wouldn't think to tell anybody what you really do and the choices you really make because the people who have found out have crossed the street. They don't want to be associated with you. They don't want your mess on them or on their reputations. Maybe your brand of mess, your version of prostitution isn't as public as hers, but it's pronounced. It's sitting like a weight on your soul. That's the thing about this woman. In this story, there's nothing in her that denies or seems to in any way cover the fact that this is who she is and this is the mess that she has made. And I think like her, some of us know it. We have messed up and we cannot fix the mess we've made and we know it. And maybe, like her, we've heard rumors that there are certain kinds of people God just will not let into heaven. There are just certain kinds of people Jesus won't hang out with. There are certain kinds of people just Jesus just would never forgive. And you are at the top of that list because, after all, you're an addict. Ooh. In fact, you've lived with addiction for years and years and years. And word on the street in the church is God hates addicts. Not even sure why you're in church. You're you're a cheater. An adulterer. You just sleep around with whoever. Just throw your body around. You're a convict. You're a divorcee. I mean, if people knew the same-sex attraction stuff you struggle with, ooh, they would cross the street. They would at least cross the aisle in the church. You're a liar. And you might have heard rumors that Jesus just doesn't associate with people like that. Maybe you've asked him to forgive you before, but you've kept kept going back over and over and over to the same places, doing the same things. And you believe that there's a certain kind of person Jesus just won't forgive. And it's a person that he's forgiven over and over and over again. And then he's like, I'm done. Some of us can relate to this prostitute in so many ways. In fact, it took every ounce of crazy in you to walk through the entryway into this religious gathering. I mean, they say it's a public event, but are they really sure? Because when you walked in, all eyes were on you. At least that's what it felt like to you. But it's Christmas and you promised. And so you're here. In fact, it feels like we're all staring at you right now. Did you talk to him about me? Why is he talking about me? And it feels like that. 
Um, you came to the right place, by the way. And uh, I have good news for you. Jesus loves the sinner. Jesus loves sinners. If this story tells us nothing else, Jesus is enjoying this woman who had lived a sinful life. Expressing her faith, as we'll see, in him. In fact, Jesus loves the worst kinds of sinners. And that's what Christmas is all about. I love uh, the way Paul says it in 1 Timothy 1.15. Look at his words. He says, here is a trustworthy saying. You can bank on this. It deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus, he came into this world. That's what Christmas is. To save sinners of whom Paul says, I am the worst. And maybe that's you. You feel like you are the worst brand of sinner. You can associate and connect with this prostitute in ways that you wouldn't even want the rest of us to know. And I'm telling you, if you come here feeling like the worst of sinners, congratulations. Jesus came for you. In fact, we'll see in this story, he came specifically for you. Unless you realize that you are the worst of sinners. Jesus' forgiveness actually stands at a distance. But Jesus came for you. He's not repelled by you. He's not intimidated by your sin. The only question is, will you be crazy enough to take the risk and fall at his feet like she did? Verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, <laughs> Yes, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Can you just see the judgment beams flying out of his eyes? Just grossed out by if he even knew what kind of woman that was. So gross. Verse 40, Jesus answered him. It's so interesting. When Jesus answers things you think that you haven't even said, that should tell you something. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. I'm all ears. I just want to learn from you. And then Jesus tells Simon, this Pharisee, the point of this story by telling him a story within the story. Verse 41. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? I mean, Simon's the resident Pharisee genius, so he knows this one. I, I know this, I suppose. The one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus says. Good job. You're smart as they say. And in this little story, Jesus makes a powerful point that church, we cannot miss. Hey, Simon, guess what? 
you cannot pay the debt you owe God. You cannot pay the debt you owe God. Wow. It doesn't matter whether you've sinned a little bit like you think you have or whether you've sinned a lot like you think she has. Neither of you can pay the debt you owe God because of your sin. There is only one hope. Someone has to cancel the debt for you. Both of you. Woo! And by the way, Simon gets the point quickly. Simon was doing what many of us in the church do. And it keeps us from experiencing God, a relationship with God, we love to do this on Facebook in particular. We are Facebook Pharisees of the highest variety. Distinguishing ourselves from those sinners. We go on these rants and rampages against all those gross 500 denarii sinners. They do the grossest things and how dare they? Well, we 50 denarii sinners, we're just a little bit scuffed up, needing a mild tweak and adjustment. But those people... That's what the Pharisee is doing in this passage. There are sinners who kind of have it together like us. And then there are those gross sinners who do those gross things. The 500 club. Us, our sin, it's pretty and small and it's manageable. And so what we do in the church is we may feel pride in our hearts. In fact, we do. We think we're better than other people. So we feel pride, but hey, I don't look at porn. I'm just saying. That's a 500 club, people. I'm thankful that I'm not a sinner like that tax collector or, or, or that slut at the feet of Jesus. I may be stingy, but I've never used a syringe, though. Those, those addicts, man, I don't know. Special place in hell for them. I'm not concerned about the poor. But don't get me wrong. I don't party on weekends. Have you heard what she's been doing? Did you see her Instagram picture? Now, I may overeat, I may overspend, I may break the law and speed in my car. <laughs> but Lord forbid, I never swear. Mm -mm. It's a 500er. Oh, we recognize the 500 denarii types of sins, but we ignore the 50. And Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter how much or how little you've sinned. If you've sinned at all, you owe God a debt you cannot pay. It has to be canceled for you. It doesn't matter whether you're a prostitute or a Pharisee. You owe God a debt you cannot pay. Simon, you cannot pay what you owe. Look at Romans 3 verse 10. It says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, church, not even one. 
There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. Verse 12, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then it says later on in that same chapter, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 50 or 500, we've all messed up. The only difference between these two is she knows it. She's aware of it. She embraces it. And there is, there is, there is hope in this story for us. Because some of us are so much like the Pharisee in this way. I'll tell you the most difficult thing is people who've made a mess and have messed up and can relate to the prostitute can do that very quickly. But people who are like the Pharisee have a hard time seeing it. Because they'll sit in a service like this and they're thinking about what everybody else needs to hear. And I hope they're, mm-hmm, hope you heard that. Elbow, elbow. I'm going to share this sermon with, mm-hmm. I'm, yeah. She's going around town, messing around. She needs to hear this. But there is hope even for the Pharisee in this story. Even for those of us who believe our sin is prettier than those people. Even for those of us who believe our screw-ups are small enough that God will either just ignore them or we can fix them. Just by doing a few good things and doing a few less bad things. God might even just forget. Let bygones be bygones. Oh, you feel at home in church? You believe you belong here. I mean, in fact, you've got reserved seats. I mean, you have reserved cushions. I mean, you have a spot. There's a soup. There's a place setting for you at the table called church. Unlike those other people, you know, the public and the prostitutes. But even if that's us, there is good news for us. Jesus loves the self-righteous. They are the hardest to reach, but Jesus loves the self-righteous. This Pharisee was a self-righteous guy, and Jesus went to his house anyway. Jesus knew he would be dissed one way or the other. He would be humiliated by this guy, but he went to his house anyway because Jesus loves even the most self-righteous of us and will come to where we are to offer us debt cancellation free of charge. Jesus loves the self-righteous. The question is, will you be humble enough to admit that even you need forgiveness and you cannot fix your own sin? Look at what John says in 1 John 1 verse 8. He says, if we claim to be without sin, 
We deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There are two kinds of people in this story, and there are two kinds of people sitting in this room. Sinners who think Jesus wants little to do with them. And the self-righteous who feel little need for Jesus. And what this story teaches us, both carry the sin debt they desperately need canceled. Because Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. This debt is a serious matter. But the gift of God is free cancellation, eternal life in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Christmas is all about. Jesus loves sinners. Jesus loves the self-righteous. And he offers to cancel the debt for both if they will come and fall at his feet in faith. The question is, will we acknowledge our need for him the way she did? And I love how this story ends. Luke 7, verse 48. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your debt is canceled. Every mess you ever made is gone. Every sinful choice you ever made is forgiven. And regardless of which of the two You are, that can be the end of your story. The tragedy about this story is at the end, Jesus says to this woman, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. And nothing to the Pharisee, which tragically must mean this Pharisee never came to the place where he admitted he needed his 50 denarii canceled. And our hope and our prayer over this season and this morning is that there will be no one who would walk out of this room carrying any debt when Jesus has an offer on the table to cancel it free of charge if we would simply come to him and acknowledge we've messed up. I may be a five denarii sinner, but I still need you to cancel my debt because I can't do it by myself and I cannot afford to continue carrying this debt. The question is, are you willing to humble yourself? Believe and come to him. And so here are two things I would say to you um, that we learn from this prostitute's preaching. Number one, my counsel to you is crash the party. Just crash the party. I love, she went to this place where she knew she wasn't going to be particularly welcomed and she risked so much at a bare minimum her dignity, her already soiled and tarnished reputation. But she went to this place because she knew the debt counselor is here. And what she said was, excuse me, I'm not here for y'all. Y'all can whisper what you want. You can say what you want. My family can think what they want. People can perceive me however they want. I came to see him. And for some of us, we need to crash the party in the sense that I don't care what people may or may not think about me. It is amazing how often self-consciousness keeps us from coming to the place where Jesus offers free forgiveness. 
my classmates will think this, my family will look at me this way, my friends can't believe I came to church, period, they'll never believe that. Don't let self-consciousness keep you from receiving the cancellation of a debt. Crash the party. Say what's up to whoever it is that may think whatever they want of you. And for the self-righteous, that is the hardest thing. Because for some of us to come to Jesus after years and years and years and years of sitting around the table. That's difficult. But don't let self-consciousness. Don't let whoever else is in the house. Or whoever else may think whatever of you keep you from being forgiven and the second thing i'll say is pour pour the perfume i love that about her trust in jesus christ it wasn't just a matter of talk it was a matter of her life and here's what i'm saying it's not just coming to jesus and saying hey jesus would you cancel my debt would you forgive me she brought her lifestyle she brought her life and she laid it down and what she was saying to jesus is i am done with that way of living see because we'll sometimes share this hope with people that says oh just get forgiveness and then just go back to living however you lived no there's a word called repentance in the bible that says no 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 bring the junk and lay it at his feet and be done with it now, it doesn't mean we won't struggle. It doesn't mean we won't go back. But it's this decisive moment in which I say, I lay it all down at his feet. I'm turning and walking in a different direction. And for some of us, for all of us, we need to do that. So I don't know who you are, where you are, but, but if there is in your heart the sense that you need your debt canceled and you know it. The offer is on the table. And we want to join together and, and say this prayer out loud like we've been doing the past number of weeks. And this is not a pressure thing. We'll put the prayer up. In fact, can we do that so you can see it? You can see what the prayer says. And if there's a place in your heart where you feel like I am tired of carrying my sin, I don't want to owe this debt, and I don't want to keep trying to fix it, and I don't want to pretend I don't need it forgiven, I want to come to the feet of Jesus and fall down, and if I become a hot mess, then I'll become a hot mess. And if people think, let them think, and if I have to leave all of that, I'll leave all of it behind. And for some of us, we're ready to... To pray this. Maybe some of us we've veered, we've wandered, and we know we need to come back to this place of acknowledging our need for him and his forgiveness again. And so if that's you, we want to stand together. In fact, we're all going to stand. Let's do that together. And uh, we, we want to pray this prayer out loud. And if you can pray this in sincerity and faith, I would encourage you to pray it. Whether you've prayed it before, let's pray it even for the sake of those who might be praying it for the first time. No pressure, but if you feel ready, then let's pray this out loud together. Ready? Jesus, I confess that I am a sinner and cannot pay the debt I owe. I bring my sin to you and ask you to fully forgive me. Amen? Please hear me. If you pray that sincerely, you can rest assured you go in peace. Your debt has been canceled. That's the Christmas news.